Hey guys, I'm Jordan, and I'm going to read our text for today. It comes from Philippians 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, good morning. So good to see you. Thanks for being with us. Uh, you know, if you're here today and you've been burned by the church or hurt by the church, or maybe you've just not been in church in a while, I want to say welcome to you. I know it's a big deal and can be nerve-wracking to walk in for the first time after it's been a while. It's a safe place for you, so just kind of take a deep breath and relax, and uh, as you're wrestling with some of these claims that Jesus made, we'd love to help you out with some of that. So thanks for being with us. Uh, a few years ago, I heard about uh, a guy that got a tattoo of Philippians 4.13, and it's one of those texts that you don't even need to be in church or grow up in church to know. Uh, it's been made famous by athletes everywhere, including Tim Tebow, who would wear it underneath his eyes. Philippians 4.13, it's, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? You know, it's some version of that. And so this guy got a tattoo of Philippians 4.13. Uh, I'll show it to you. The only problem um, is with this reference is that actually Philippians is misspelled. So it's not two L's, it's one L and two P's. Uh, so he can do all things through Christ except for spell his tattoo correctly. And, and, and here, it's so crazy, right? Because this verse has been used by athletes to be like, yeah, you can leap over tall buildings and throw a football really fast and you can do anything except for Christ or, or in Christ uh, who gives you strength. And the idea with that verse is it's really just been ripped out of context and even in the heart of what Paul is saying, he's not giving this vision for all of life as much as what he's saying. You can actually embrace contentment in your life, whether you have a lot or you have a little, because in Christ you can do all things. Philippians is one of those books that has a lot of quotable, famous passages of Scripture, but a lot of those quotable, famous passages of Scripture have been ripped out of context, completely divorced from what Paul, the author of this book, was trying to communicate to a specific group of people in a specific culture, in a specific location, seeing the world a very unique way. 
And so I think what I want to do today is, is just be honest with you about my fear. My fear is that as we approach chapter 4 and finish out this book, my fear is that we are going to kind of blow past the context of chapter 4 and forget why Paul is writing this letter to this church in the first place. Uh, today's our last week in our series in Philippians. Next week I'm going to do a, a sermon on kind of a biblical vision of the Holy Spirit and his gifts. And my hope next week is that by God's grace, we'll be able to raise the water level in our church of desire and hunger for the Holy Spirit and his gifts and really show you why it's actually uh, good and right to be a church that loves the Bible, loves theology, but really loves the Holy Spirit and wants more of his presence. So we're going to do that next Sunday, being filled with the Spirit. And then the Sunday after, we're going to kick off a new series over the book of Jonah. So you can you know, kind of bring some friends to that. We would love it. So this week, last week of Philippians, why is this a big deal? If you divorce the context of this letter from chapter 4, then chapter 4 is going to sound like a rant a moralistic rant of optional commands that you should think about doing. But if you understand the context, then what you'll realize is that chapter 4 is one of, the, one of the most significant chapters that a group of people in a culture like ours could latch onto. And if you would latch onto it, it might just maybe have the potential of even changing the way our city experiences Christianity. If 500 people latched onto what Paul says in chapter 4, it would have a significant impact on our city in terms of mission and telling people about Jesus. So what is the context? Well, a as you know, a lot, of, a lot of you are here when we kick this series off, that Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul from prison. So he's actually chained to a Roman soldier, and he's writing to the Philippian church. And this is in the, the Roman col colony of Philippi. Now, Philippi, out of all the, the other Roman colonies, was one of the most patriotic, nationalistic uh, colonies in, in all of Rome. About one-third of the entire world was a part of the Roman Empire at this point, was a Roman citizen, and Philippi in particular had a high view of Caesar, and there was almost cultic levels of worship of Caesar. Uh, there's a famous phrase, Caesar is Lord and Savior. Caesar's the one that they viewed as bringing salvation, you know, freedom from your barbaric enemies and peace in the land, and he gave you a home. He gave you a new identity as a Roman citizen. And Philippi was filled with retired Roman soldiers that fought for Caesar. And so this cultic worship of Caesar was a big deal in this culture. Now what happened is the gospel came to Philippi and all these people started to meet Jesus and they started to realize that their identity as Roman citizens and their identity as Christians were clashing. That they can't actually say Caesar is Lord anymore. And now what they have to do is they have to bow the knee and say that Jesus is Lord. And you can just imagine, this created danger, this created persecution, created opposition and pushback from the culture because this cultic level of worship of Caesar was such a big deal. And here you have this small, fledgling group of Christians trying to figure out how do we stay faithful to Jesus as Lord in a culture that wants nothing to do with us and sees us as the enemy. And you, you kind of wonder, like, what does this has, have to do with our culture? Well, even though we live in the Bible Belt, what is still happening is this secularization of our culture, and what's taking place is not that we're becoming less spiritual or less religious as a society. We're actually becoming uh, as spiritual and as religious as we've always been, but we're changing out our gods for other gods. 
So no longer do we call God uh, Caesar or Zeus or Artemis. Now we call our gods money and success and power and sex and pleasure and individual freedom and autonomy. And those become the highest values and good in our culture. And what's happening is the world is no longer saying Caesar is Lord and Savior, but our culture is saying money is Lord and Savior. Success is Lord and Savior, and power is Lord and Savior, and all these other things they're holding out to you as optional lords and saviors that you can worship. And so you feel this tension, don't you, of being a Christian where your identity as a follower of Jesus is now starting to come uh, in competition with and clashing with your identity as someone from Oklahoma living in America where our highest goods look very different than culture's highest good. And how do you do this? How do you live as a follower of Jesus in a complicated world where there's strife and tension and the polarization of our society is at an all-time high? How do you live faithfully as a follower of Jesus? That's what this book's all about. And in chapter four, he's gonna give us, in, in specific, this culture of the kingdom. So I just wanna read this to you. This is at the very end of chapter three. And starting in verse 20, he's going into chapter four with these important words. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Everything that he's about to tell us in chapter 4 is rooted in this reality that if you are a follower of Jesus, all these other identities that you brought into the room, they're actually subjugated and subservient to this other identity, which is Jesus is Lord and Savior, and your ultimate citizenship is not an American in Oklahoma in 2018. Your ultimate citizenship is in heaven with Jesus. So you are called by God's grace and power to stand firm in a chaotic world. How do we do that? Well, I love what he says. Our citizenship is in heaven, and I love it. He says, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that he doesn't say our citizenship is, is in heaven, and one day we get to float off of this terrible, messy, complicated earth and go to be with Jesus in heaven away from this thing. No, that's not our hope. Our hope is not in the rapture of being sucked off the planet. Our hope is actually in Jesus who is king, coming down to this earth, and between now and that point, we are called to stand firm in hope as citizens of the, of the heavenly city. So how do you do that? How do you live inside of the kingdom of God on earth? How do you have this culture of the kingdom that actually starts to shape your own culture and your own life and your family and your community group? How do you live underneath King Jesus in such a way that your life starts to look different as a result of his grace coming to bear. That's what we're exploring in chapter four to wrap up this book. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I think this is gonna be helpful because you're gonna see that Jesus isn't just inviting you to be forgiven of your sins. He is inviting you to receive forgiveness, but he's also inviting you to receive this other identity as a member of the heavenly, being a citizen of heaven that has your life shaped by Jesus. So five things that I wanna throw your way real quickly. Uh, the first one, a kingdom culture is a culture of reconciliation. A culture of reconciliation. Look at chapter four, verse two. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I, I ask you also, true companion, 
help these women. We don't, we don't know who this third-party companion is, but he's saying, whoever that guy is, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So let's pause. The, the backstory here is that there are two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, that were relationally close and were working with Paul, laboring alongside of Paul in the gospel. They're leaders in this church in Philippi, and they've had relational tension. They've had fallout take place in their relationship. And now they're not talking. And it's such an epic, epic fight that's occurred between these two ladies that Paul, who is in prison, 800 miles away, so imagine like Oklahoma City to Breckenridge, Colorado, 800 miles away, Paul hears about the fight and takes the time to write to them and lovingly call them out by name and include them in this letter that's going to be read in front of the church. And you get to chapter 4, and they're just kind of listening like, man, chapter 3 was so good. What's, what's chapter 4 hold? And then they hear their names called out, right? And it's like, oh, man, I mean, not a lot of people made it in the Bible by name. These two ladies made the most famous, widely read book in the history of the world because of a fight that they had. Can you imagine? Like, in the new heavens and new earth, you'll be able to walk up to them and be like, did you guys ever get that worked out, the fight? Because we've all known about it, the whole church for the last 2,000 years have known about your relational fallout. And what Paul says is he says, I want you to get it fixed. I want you to get it worked out. I entreat you. I'm pleading with you. I'm begging with you. Hey, two ladies, I love you. I'm not shaming you. I'm, I, you're not in trouble. Get reconciled. And sometimes a fight is so bad that you need a third party to come in and help you. Now, here's why that's encouraging to me. Because as one of your pastors, I know that some of you have some epic fights. You have some epic fights in your marriage. You have some epic fights in your family. You have some fights in your community. You have some fights where, for whatever reason, someone has done something to you, and whether you've said it out loud or not, you felt it deep in your soul, that person's dead to me. And I'll be fine if I don't ever see him. And even if we go to the same church, I might go to a different service, or I might just not pretend or pretend to not see them, uh, whatever it might be. But there's this tension, this fallout. And as your pastor, if I didn't have this in there, I would be so freaked out by our church, right? I'd be like, man, we've got problems left and right. And here's what's so crazy. If you do a study of the New Testament, what you're going to find, if you look at who are the best, most healthy churches in the Bible, Philippi makes the list of maybe... It's definitely one of the best, maybe the most healthy churches in all of the New Testament. And even this healthy church had relational tension and brokenness and fallout. So Paul, if he were writing to us, what would he say? Who would he call out? Who would he put in his letter by name? I entreat you because of the grace of Jesus. See, Jesus has moved towards his enemies. He's moved towards those who were not ready to reconcile, wanted nothing to do with him. We had done all the wrong, and he was the innocent party. And yet, even though he was innocent, he came towards us and reconciled. And so a culture of the kingdom necessarily has to be a culture of reconciliation. In fact, it's not a sign of your immaturity that you don't get into a fight. Like, you can be mature in, in Jesus and get in fights and have disagreements and relational fallout. Maturity in Jesus is not that we never do that. Maturity in Jesus is that when that happens, we always move towards reconciliation. 
And so I just, like, I actually in the first service was tempted to call people out by name because there weren't a lot of, there weren't as many. And I, was, I, I knew stories in the room, and I wanted to, and even in this moment, I feel the tension. I'm not going to do that, so it's safe here. But, but I, I just feel the tension. Like some of you, you you've, been, you've been bickering, you've been at it for a while. You've got to stop now. And even if you need a third party, the gospel and the kingdom are not going to allow you to maintain this relational fallout where you're disconnected. Don't be bringing other people in a sinful way into this. Go to the person, go to the tension, get reconciled. This is just the way life in the kingdom works. It's a culture of reconciliation. So maybe Paul would put your name here, and maybe you need to make a phone call today, or set up a meeting, or apologize, or have a conversation. That's first thing that we see this culture of reconciliation. Number two, in the kingdom, there's a culture of joy. A culture of joy. Look at chapter four, verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. When? 75% of the time. No, rejoice in the Lord always. And then as if you didn't hear him. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. You see, for Paul, he was so enamored with his citizenship being in heaven and Jesus being near, as in returning to the earth. He's going to come back. He's going to make all things new. He's going to fix things. And all of a sudden, that produces in you this eternal perspective where you can't help but realize, like, yeah, if I'm rejoicing in my circumstances, then I don't often have a lot to rejoice in, do I? But he doesn't say that. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. You know, one of the things that's always baffled me, and I grew up in the church, is watching Christians that are, generally speaking, curmudgeonly, bitter, quick to get angry, hard to be around because they've got a chip on their shoulder, constantly negative. And this verse almost feels like miles away. And by the way, I just described myself and all those things. I tend to be that way. And so I'm looking at this verse and I'm convicted because it's saying rejoice not in your, your circumstances or in the reality of your life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I read about this uh, underground river in Pittsburgh that flows underneath the city. And even on the outskirts of the city, what's so crazy is they'll have droughts for weeks upon weeks where it doesn't rain. And you'd expect everything around that area, area to just dry up, kind of look like Oklahoma has looked the last few days when it's been like 170 uh, degrees outside. And you expect the grass to be brown and all this stuff. But instead, outside of Pittsburgh, everything is lush and beautiful and green constantly. Why? There's this underground river flowing beneath the feet of the city so that when you're walking on the city, you don't see it, but it's, it's producing this vibrant, healthy life all around it. And I want to say that life with Jesus is like that in terms of joy. Not that we walk around with like a pretend painted on smile, try to be Joel Osteen for a few minutes and, you know, be happy all the time. And like, that, that's not actually what's going on in the life of a Christian. What's going on in the life of a Christian is there's this underground river of the gospel of what God has done in you and for you and is doing through you. And that just produces joy all around it. Not happiness as much as joy. Like, bedrock, deep, beneath the surface joy. I wrote this to myself the other day because I struggle to have joy. And by the way, Paul is not writing from a cruise ship, you know, sipping like, give me round two of my margarita. He's writing from prison saying this. 
And I'm like, how can he be so joyful in jail? And I get so frustrated because my toilet overflowed and it ruined my day. How is that possible? So I wrote this out for myself. Maybe it'll help you. You were known and loved before the earth was created. You were chosen by God, sought and pursued when you were an enemy. In Jesus, you are forgiven. You're adopted. You're justified. You're reconciled. God actually delights in you. You bring joy to his heart. You are filled with the Spirit, given a new identity, a new calling, a new reason to live. You've been invited into a kingdom that can't be shaken. You've been seated in the heavenly places. Because of Jesus, you will inherit all things, including the mountains of Colorado, praise be to God, and Saturn itself. Everything sad that has ever happened to you will be reversed and turned into joy when Jesus comes to make all things new. The good work that he started in you will be completed by him, and he won't ever walk out on you no matter how many times you walk out on him. That's hard not to get excited about. And actually, by your reaction, I'm getting really nervous right now. (laughs) I I expected a lot more amens on that one, I'll be honest. I expected some excitement, um, so I'm going to move on because I'm depressed after the... It's a culture of joy. I want our church to be a joyful church because, yes, stuff in your life might be broken and profoundly sad and things might be falling apart, but if you are in Jesus, you have been forgiven of every sin you've ever committed. How do you not get excited about that? You will never be held accountable for the stuff in your life, the baggage and the brokenness, because he's tossed it into the ocean of his love and he's, he's given you a new identity. How do you not get excited about that? How do you not get joyful about that? He will never leave you or forsake you, ever. How do you not get excited about that? It's a joyful river flowing beneath the surface of all the other brokenness in your life. It's the culture of the kingdom. It's a culture of joy. Number three, in the kingdom, a kingdom culture is a culture of non-anxious, prayerful presence. Non-anxious, prayerful presence. Chapter four, verse six. Do not be anxious about much no, about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god and the peace of god which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in christ jesus can you imagine a world without anxiety can you imagine a world where you don't have the stress of anxiety flowing through your life and sitting heavily on your chest like an elephant A study that was done in 2017 showed that one in six Americans, this was a big study, one in six Americans are on anxiety medication. And that's a low number of Americans that, that, um, if you think, well, that's not too bad, most Americans go undiagnosed with anxiety. And every year, it's going up, it's going up. Our anxiety as a culture is not getting better, it's getting worse. Why is that? When I say anxiety, I don't have to define it. You know what I'm talking about. We all live in anxious lives, racked with anxiety about what ifs and if this goes wrong and what if something happens to my kids and oh, the world is so politically polarized and what if this thing goes bad and, and we just are racked with anxiety constantly as a culture. Why is that? Well, I think for some of us, it really is uh, like a, a mental illness, and so we need to praise God for doctors and modern medicine. That's common grace from Jesus that we should, we should receive and be thankful for. But here's the reality. The reality is that a lot of our anxiety is actually rooted in internal things and external things outside of it being a mental illness. Like, um, I don't know about you, but 
I kind of live times of my life as a functional atheist, which I'm sure is a really encouraging thing for one of your pastors to tell you. I don't mean that theologically I'm an atheist. I actually believe in God, and even though I struggle with doubt on occasion, I really do believe that God is real, that he exists, that he's revealed himself in Jesus. I believe that. But functionally speaking, there are parts of my day where I pretend or forget about him altogether, and I, I almost just kind of consider my world and me being responsible for all the things in my world, and God is just an afterthought. I become a functional atheist. So I get anxious about stuff. Like, even... Stuff that is sinful and wrong, I, get, I just get anxious about it. I got invited to speak at a conference in September. Uh, it's with a bunch of guys that I love and respect, uh, guys like Matt Chandler. And I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be at a thing with Matt Chandler? I used to podcast Matt Chandler. And now here we are in July, and I'm stressed out of my mind about a talk I'm going to give in September. Every time I pull out my calendar, there it is. I've got to get ready for this talk. And oh, my gosh, I'm anxious. Luckily, it's a talk on being filled with the Spirit. So that makes sense, right? Like, how does that happen that you get so twisted where even these just broken things create anxiety in your life? Functional atheism. And I used to think that, man, a good person who spends time in prayer, what they do is they sit down and they've got this long list of really spiritual things they're going to pray about. And so I felt so discouraged as a Christian because I'd have a good four or five minute run in prayer where it was like, following a logical train of thought and it was really spiritual and all the important things were being prayed about. I'm praying for the nations. Now I'm going to go to the next thing and the next thing. And then what would happen is about minute five or six, I start to realize that I've just been disengaged for the last minute or two. Does this ever happen to you? And you're like, oh man, I've, I've been thinking about work or I'm stressed about this and I've just been daydreaming about all these problems or whatever. And I, I used to think, yeah, that, that's a sign of a really unfaithful, bad Christian. Good Christians can spend lots of time in prayer over really important things. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 not true. Look at what he says. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Actually, your requests are flowing out of your anxiety. So what creates stress in your life? That's what God cares about and wants you to pray for. Even if it's sinful, even if it's broken, even if it's all about you, he wants to confront you in grace in those moments of prayer. And actually, it's that those times where you're wondering and your thoughts are bouncing, those are God's loving invitations to you. Pray about that. Pray about that. Pray about that. Pray about that. But instead, you and I are just anxious people. What would it look like to pray out our anxiety? into peace. What would that look like? I think another reason why we're so anxious as a culture is because of social media. Could anybody agree to that? Social media is creating kind of a, an anxious digital nervous system that we're 24-7 tapped into. In our pockets, we have access to all the bad things going on all the time in the world. And you are supposed to care about everything. And if you don't tweet about everything right now, then you don't care about it. And if you don't post about it, then you don't care about it. You gotta know, you gotta care, you gotta feel. <gasps> and then you just get stressed anxious, overwhelmed. Media theorist, which I didn't know was a thing, uh, media theorist Douglas Rush Rushkoff says that the way that you and I now interact with media and social media is a new term that people are starting to use, present shock. Present shock. Most people just live inside of that state of insane amounts of anxiety. I love the words of Mark Sayers in his wonderful book, Strange Days. He says, our mental environments daily 
become a confusing blend of horror, distraction, and fun. Our portable devices mean that we're always receiving a torrent of information. Checking Facebook for the details of a party invite, one can see news about a terrifying event half a world away. For most of history, news was so hard to gather and expensive to deliver, its hold on our inner lives was inevitably kept in check, reflects philosopher Elaine de Botton. Now, however, it is everywhere. Do you feel that? Then he goes on to say, like, even the way that we receive news and information changes, like having a phone that constantly is inundating you with the situations of the world, it changes your uh, anxiety levels. Mark Sayers goes on to say, daily we are faced with a barrage of mad, bad, and confusing news. A constant stream of visceral video delivered to our screens. An ISIS operative exploding at a Belgium airport. The victim of a police shooting bleeding to death live on Facebook. The president of Turkey mid-coup asserting his power via FaceTime. Images of an aid worker picking up the body of a Syrian toddler washed up on a resort beach. Warning, some viewers may find the following footage disturbing as becoming the tagline of our moment. And so you and I were tapped in so much. And all of that, somehow we slip into functional atheism, forgetting that there is a God who is in control of our world and is actually marching history forward towards his purposes and kingdom. And all of a sudden we get stressed over politics and terrorism and foreign relations and global economy and all these other things and we fail to be present with the person right in front of us and we fail to be present with our city. And so what Paul's inviting us to is to step in and allow our anxiety and stress to be pathways of prayer so that we can take all of that, dumping it on the only shoulders who can bear the weight, King Jesus. And then that creates in us just this non-anxious, prayerful presence. It's a big deal for our city to see Christians that can be that way. Number four, it's not just a culture of reconciliation. It's not just a culture of joy. It's not just a culture of non-anxious, prayerful presence, but the kingdom is a kingdom culture of virtue. It's a kingdom culture of virtue. Chapter four, verse eight, look at these words. Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received, heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's interesting, this passage, because what he's doing is he's pulling from current Greek virtues in the first century that were very common. You didn't have to be a Christian to be taught these virtues. Every Greek and Roman citizen would have been taught these exact same virtues. And commentators have have kind of said this is really intriguing because what Paul was saying is he's not asking you to be super spiritual. He's saying, hey, listen, even the world at this time, even the world walks in virtue. So at least walk in that level of virtue as someone that isn't a follower of Jesus. At least be as virtuous as a non-Christian and build in these beautiful things into your thinking and into your mind and inhale all of what God is doing in your life that's good and true and beautiful and real. Now this has been so convicting to me. Out of all the passages that we've looked at in Philippians over the last several weeks, this one has hit me so hard. 
And just as a confession, like I'm looking at this list and I'm realizing that the things that I'm taking in and the things that I think about and the things that consume my life, often most of them don't pass this test. If I send them through the grid of, is it true? Is it honorable? Is it just? Righteous? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Lovely is I'm like a symphony of Beethoven or a good movie that's beautiful. Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Is it excellent? If I could attach an iPhone app to my brain that would reveal my thoughts on the screen for everybody to see, would they see the thoughts and go, that's worthy of praise? That stirs my heart to worship God. Or would my thoughts be embarrassing? Would they be self-centered? Would they be sinful? Would they be degrading? This has been so convicting for me. Here's what we spend our time on. I don't know if you've realized. (laughs) The average person looks at social media 116 minutes a day. It's almost two hours. That's five years and four months of your life on social media. I hope you feel good about your life now, right? I didn't after reading that. Five years and four months. Now, when you compare that to the one year and three months that you spend actually socializing with friends and family, it kind of makes you cringe, doesn't it? Uh, extreme averages for teenagers is nine hours a day on social media. If you have a teenager, God bless you. We are praying for you, right? Keep up the good work. Um, Nine hours a day on social media, that's more time spent than most people spend sleeping or at school. It's just kind of the new norm of our culture. Americans spend on average five to seven hours a day watching TV. Five to seven hours a day watching TV. So just follow me here for just a minute. If you consume social media for two hours a day, if you consume Netflix or some show or TV five to seven hours a day, and then you, by some miracle, are one of the few Christians that wakes up early in the morning and spends 15 minutes praying and reading your Bible, how in the world do you not think that you're going to be more shaped by our world than by the truth of who God is and what he's done. We are radically being formed by the culture. And I just want you to know that what the culture's view of the world is, of life, of what is good, of what is right, what is true, is so far away from God's vision of humanity and what is good and honorable and commendable and true and lovely I just want to plead with you, like some of you, like honestly, you didn't expect to hear this today, but some of you, the shows that you're watching should be embarrassing to you. They should shock you. They don't even get close to making this list. Like let's just start there. Like let's not try to take Oklahoma City for Jesus just yet. Let's just repent of our sin of not being able to follow a really simple passage about creating virtue in our lives because of the grace of Jesus that has just so changed us. Let's start with what we watch, what we take in, what we think about. I'm so convicted by this, but it's virtuous, and it's what you and I are being called to. I love these words of N.T. Wright. It says, the command in verse 8 to think about all the wonderful and lovely things listed here runs directly opposite to the habits of mind instilled by the modern media. Read the newspapers or, you know, social media Their stock and trade is anything that is untrue, unholy, unjust, impure, ugly, of ill repute, vicious, and blameworthy. 
Is that a true representation of God's good and beautiful world? How are you going to celebrate the goodness of the Creator if you feed your mind only on the places in the world which humans have made ugly? How are you going to take steps to fill your mind instead with all the things that God has given us to be legitimately pleased with and to enjoy and to celebrate? Culture of virtue is just what grace does to a group of people. And finally, number five, it's not just a culture of virtue, but it's a culture of contentment. I'm not going to take much time on this because I've already uh, mentioned this passage, but First Corinthians chapter four, or Philippians chapter four, verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's pretty self-explanatory. It's, it's not talking about, yeah, you can, you know, do all these amazing athletic things. He's saying you can actually, by the power of God, learn to put greed to death once and for all. The secret of being content, where you learn whether you have a lot in your life right now and things are going as planned, or you have a little and things are very hard and you're scraping just to make it by. Whatever's going on in life, actually this realization that Jesus is the king and part of what it looks like to stand firm in this culture in 2018 is to learn to not be greedy by the grace of God, but to learn to be content with where God has us, what he's given us, where he's placed us, what we have, what we don't have, learning the gift of contentment. Can you imagine a 500 people in Oklahoma City just captured a vision of contentment by the power of Jesus, what that would do to people in our, in our city as they watch that life unfold? Can you imagine what that would do? So let me close with this. Where do we go from here? This, this chapter has just been so convicting for me because about 90% of it is stuff that I struggle with. About 90% of it's stuff that, that is really difficult for me. And so I'm so thankful for the grace of God in this because it's actually grace that empowers these things to take place. And here's what I want you to know, first and foremost, as we wrap this up. Grace always leads to a life of virtue and effort. Always. I told some friends uh, a few nights ago that were hanging out at our house. I said, listen, here's the deal. I think the grace movement of the last 15 years has been one of the biggest blessings to, to the church and also one of the most unhelpful things that's ever happened. And here's what I mean. I love the grace movement because I actually needed that. I was so legalistic and thought that Jesus would love me based on what I brought to the table and how good I was and if I did these things and didn't do these things, I thought God would love. And then I realized that actually the grace of God is that it really doesn't matter what you've done or what you do. What matters is what Jesus has done for you and your righteousness is 100% dependent upon him, his death, his resurrection, and nothing of what you've done. It's grace. It's open for anybody. It's not a certain type of person. Everyone in this room can receive the grace of God. Coming to Jesus empty and receiving his fullness. I love the grace movement, but I think in many ways what's happened is the grace movement has actually gone too far. And instead of leading where grace always leads to a life of virtue and effort, it's led a lot of us to think that effort doesn't really matter anymore. And I can kind of decide what's right for me and what's wrong for me and do that and live however I want. No, no, that's not grace. Listen, Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he, he's been highly exalted. He's now king over every king and lord over every lord. 
Philippians 3, your righteousness doesn't matter. What only matters is Jesus and his righteousness, and you can be connected to that by faith. Just come as you are, broken and sinful. That's Philippians 3. Philippians 4, now stand firm and do some hard work. Take on some virtue. Be formed into the way of Jesus. Learn what it is to be joyful. Learn what it is to be content. Learn what it is to stand firm in this crazy culture by being a non-anxious, prayerful person. Grace always leads to virtue and effort. I love the words of Dallas Willard. He said, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. It's opposed to you earning God's love, but it's not opposed to effort. The other thing I want you to see is that as we start this series in Jonah in two weeks, we're going to be really calling you to live on mission in our city. And I think about Frontline, I think about the fall, and I think about all the potential of, of us as a church really rallying behind the mission of God in our city. But here's the problem. If we don't learn to put on Jesus in these ways and for this type of stuff to form us, then we're going to be going out into the world literally looking just like the world, which is no bueno for mission, Right? It can't happen. What are we calling people to? See, the church is called to be salt and light, to be a city on a hill. And chapter four is trying to get you there. It's trying to push you. This is how you build in being formed into the image of Jesus. And this is gonna free you up to live on mission. You have to have this by the grace of God so that as you go out and you're interacting with your friends and your family and people that you work with, they really truly do see you worship a different God and you bow the knee to a different king, and your vision of the good, the good life is different than my vision of the good life. It's all wrapped around Jesus. Lastly, and I'd love for you to stand for this one, the last thing I want you to think about with me as we wrap this up. If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, I want to ask you some questions. So just close your eyes with me. Think about your own life right now. Think about your habits. Think about your routines, your rhythms. Think about what you're taking in in terms of social media, which is not all bad. Movies, shows, the vision of the good life that the world is handing you. What are you taking in on a daily basis? And I want to just ask you, as a Christian, what do you need to start doing what do you need to stop doing? And what do you need to keep doing? For some of you, God's loving, gentle invitation in this moment is as simple as you just saying, okay, Jesus, I do, I do want to wrap my life around your word. What does it look like for me to step in and engage the scriptures in the morning with you 20 minutes. What does that look like? I, I get that doesn't sound revolutionary. That doesn't sound like moving to another country for Jesus. That's a big deal if you'll do that. What does Jesus want you to start doing? What does he want you to stop doing? And what does Jesus want you to keep doing? N.T. Wright asked a question which I was so convicted by. He said, which of us could say after staying in a town for a few weeks that the way to be a good Christian was to do exactly what we ourselves had done? If somebody could follow you around with a video camera for two, three weeks, would they get a vision of what it is to submit your life to Jesus? Or would it literally look like every other Oklahoman, American? What's he inviting you to start doing? 
What is he asking you to stop doing? And what is he encouraging you to keep doing? It's a big deal to think about those questions as we wrap up this book. Because otherwise, this is just going to be a book with a bunch of coffee cup verses that are really cool to print out on posters and hang in your home, but they won't be integrated into your life.